All right. Hi, everyone. Today, I'm really excited about this conversation because I haven't done anything like this in a while. I stopped doing interviews and conversations and just been doing solo episodes on the podcast, but I'm so obsessed with this school and I'm so obsessed with the mission and the founders and the vision that I have to share this brilliant community with all of you. My intention is to introduce you to Lindsay and Jamal um, and the Freedom Community School mission, but really for your heart inspiration, for you to see a path forward in your anti-racist work that will be going on for the rest of your life. It is not a one and done. You, there's no checklist where then now you're anti-racist and you're good to go. You will not be getting a certification. It will be a lifelong practice of awareness, of messing up, of being open, of giving money and giving your power and giving your voice to other people. So that's what today is about, is just sharing this amazing school mission purpose um, Lindsay, I want you to start, or Jamal, either one of you, whoever wants to start, tell us about the school, tell us about why you're involved with it, and just pass the mic. I can start and tell a little bit about this school. Um, yeah, thank you so much for having us, Pleasants. We're really uh, excited to be here and to share a little bit about our community. Um, so we're the Freedom Community School, and we're a tuition-free private school in Washington, D.C., um, because of COVID, we'll operate online for our first year. Um, and then we have a building in Southeast that we're excited to move into as soon as it's safe. Um, and this school project came sort of out of the ashes of a charter school um, community, where a lot of us were students, parents, and teachers. Um, and we, most of the, the people in doing the community, Freedom Community School met at that charter school. Um, and had a lot of alignment around our values and the ways that we wanted to be working with young children and the ways that we wanted to resist the racism that's inherently built into the charter school system. Um, and after a lot of shared disappointment around the direction the school was moving in and um, the things that were being asked of us as, as students, parents, and teachers um, to collude with, with those racist systems around standardized testing, around criminalizing young people's behavior rather than trying to understand it, um, and around the ways that teachers are asked to coerce and manipulate children um, and the ways that parents are sort of disenfranchised and excluded from process around um, supporting their kids. Uh, a group of us decided to leave and start our own community school. So that's where the idea came from and that's where we're, we're starting from. Yeah, uh, I'm Jamal Gray, even though my name says Cairo Gray. Cairo Gray <laughs> is actually my son, um, and he's the reason I'm here in support of Freedom Community School. Um, like Lindsay said, you know, we are all a part of this community around a certain charter school in D.C. Um, and like Lindsay, I'm a native Washingtonian as well. Um, and I've got to experience a lot of different styles of schooling in my time in D.C., and so it's important for me um, that we kind of look to new ways of exploring education. Um, I mean, especially in these times, but you know, when we're talking about breaking down certain systems of oppression, I think it's really important that we start with like, you know, the younger we can with our students. And so that's part of the reason why 
you know, we, Cairo's mother and I, and the other parents have kind of rallied around this vision uh, that Lindsay has set out. Um, and we were also, you know, our kids were also students of uh, Lindsay's. And so we, we saw her attention to detail and attention to like pouring into the children in a certain way that um, we could see direct results from instantly. So, you know, it was easy for us to say, all right, have a sense of confidence in her vision. And I think it already aligned with how a lot of the parents were already like either raised or looking to uh, raise their families or, you know, so um, yeah, that's why I'm here in support of, in support of our children and community and also in support of like radical change. And it, it starts here with the kids. You know? How old is Cairo? Cairo is seven and he was going to the second grade. So Amazing. I have a nine-year-old son, so I'm, oh, tight. I love him. I'm on my way. <laughs> I'm on my way there. And he just turned nine, so he's, but he really acts like a three-year-old or four-year-old most of the time. <laughs> I got um, the reverse. I have a seven-year-old that thinks he's 17. Or oh, yeah. Is he older? Is he the only one or old, the oldest? He's the, he's the only. He's yeah, the only. so right mine now. has an older sister, so that's why he's uh, very, okay. like, you know, baby, yeah, <laughs> baby the, bear. <laughs> I'm, I'm the baby, so I understand. Oh, you get it. <laughs> I feel for him, yes, at nine. It drives his sister crazy. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure. Um, okay, you touched on this a little, Lindsay, but I would love, so people who listen to this podcast typically got involved through yoga or Ayurveda or wellness or have gone to one of my retreats or, you know, something like that, where they kind of are, I would say in general, in a very status quo, waking up to how racist our educational system is. Um, So can you guys think of any specific examples um, in either the schools that you were in, again, without naming anything or, you know, shaming anybody, but really bringing to light some of the examples of what you guys saw or, um, or experienced around specific racist practices that are so inherent in the system? Yeah, I I guess I can go, um, something we've talked about before. Um, I think for me, I've gotten the experience of being at DC public schools, Uh, a private school in DC and a charter school for high school. And I think most importantly, and and it'd be relevant to what we're seeing right now is like this dynamic between authority and and, and discipline and what that means and our relationship to that. And, you know, the earlier we start exploring that and the earlier we kind of establish that, um, you know, a more, a more open and considerate kind of relationship and dynamic between children and adults specifically, um, then I think we can kind of shift a lot of what we see in regards to, you know, how in general we grow up viewing um, authority figures, you know, and and disciplinarians, and specifically for young Black um, women and men, that dynamic has been crucial, you know, like the presence of police in certain schools or the, the, you know, punitive approaches to 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 rules, I guess, I, I can, for lack of a better word, but just like the punitive approach, I think for me was very damaging early on. And it can kind of make, um, I mean, especially if learning is the goal, then it makes it harder to like build up that trust and establish like, you know, a loving community if, if punishment 
um, and discipline are kind of rooted in these very kind of violent systems. And yeah, so I've seen a lot of people, a lot of my peers who that was a barrier for them, you know, especially when school is supposed is essentially like a home away from home as much time as we're spending there. So uh, considering there's a lot of different dynamics that that are happening at home, kids bringing those to school, there has to be like very careful approaches to, you know, how we how we treat certain behavioral issues or certain, um, you know, mental issues, mental wellness and all these things like all of it is relevant to, I think, that dynamic between uh, teacher and student or teacher and parent or parent and child, you know, parent and student. And it's got to be some sort of like synchronicity and also some sort of uh, joined thinking around that, you know, and I think that's what the approach that Lindsay was. It's like, and, and it's why it's important for us to look at each other as collaborators in community, not just teacher, parent, student, like we're all kind of building this together. And I mean, I think that should be the standard period in like an educational setting because it's, you know, it's where kids spend so much of their time. So if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. I mean, I agree with, with all of that. And I think, you know, specifically what we see a lot of in schools is a replication of the carceral system, which is incredibly intentional. It doesn't just happen to look like a prison. It's designed like a prison um, and in effect funnels tons and tons of folks into the prison system. And the prison and policing systems are inherently and historically uh, systems of white supremacy created to control um, and brutalize the bodies of black and indigenous people. Um, and schools operate in the same way. Um, they use the exact same set of logic. So if you do something that is not in alignment with the expectations of the community and those expectations are set by adults, often white adults, um, and those expectations are incredibly specific, what information you're going to get, what you're going to do with your body, exactly how you're going to sit on the carpet, when you're gonna sit on the carpet, <laughs> when you're gonna study, what you're gonna study. And if any breach of those expectations happens, we immediately move into a punishment system. So exclusion, you know, you're in timeout, then you're kicked out of the classroom. Um, if your body doesn't do exactly what white adults are saying your body needs to do, and this is even in schools where the administration is, you know, majority people of color, because those expectations are set from above that, that set of, of administrators. Um, and these standards are, are largely nationwide. And, and you see them even more deeply in schools in black neighborhoods where people um, come in and decide like, we just, we have to control these black bodies. We have to have more discipline. We have to have, you know, more, they call them, you know, rigorous expectations. But what they mean is we have to control your body down to the, where your hands go um, so that your, your body will be compliant. And, um, and I think some of that is rooted in trying to keep black bodies safe um, in a world that's incredibly violent to them outside of school. Um, but when we do that, what we do is we teach young people to comply um, and to, to, to stay alive in white supremacy um, and if we're going to do that, we need to also give them the opportunity to understand and to contextualize that that's what's happening so that they also develop skills to resist and dismantle white supremacy. Um, and so I think we, like Jamal and I have both seen tons of that in, in the schools that we've been a part of. Um, and I've seen it across the board in private schools, public schools, charter schools. Um, and I've seen it, um, yeah, much 
worse on like people are much more specifically targeting um, the bodies of, of black students, the bodies of poor students, um, because those systems are created always to control those those groups of people um, in an effort to to maintain a capitalist machine that hoards wealth and power in the hands of white Christian men. Yeah, and there's so little, there's been so little, I mean, I just, the way you describe it brings back so many of my years teaching in DCPS, where we had the X's on the carpet that the kindergarten team, we all had to use the same thing. And I remember being like, but why, but why? And it was like, get in line, lady, get in line, lady. You know, like, this is how we do it here. This is how we do it here. Um, So it was like a very visceral when you were describing, Lindsay, where I was like, yes, that is exactly what we did. Um, And being curious about it, but not having the language. I was too young and naive and didn't know enough to have the language to push back that where this was coming from right? And how layered and steeped it was in the bigger culture that was happening. Because I mean, again, let's be clear, a lot of young, what actually any color, but specifically young white teachers who say, I, I want to go teach in DC public schools, um, or Philadelphia public schools, where I did my training, like, it doesn't matter. Um, we're not going in to say, I want to uphold systemic racism. Like it was a very much, I want to dismantle this, but you get so caught up in the system and there's no actual, when you do question or push, you get, you get labeled an outlier or um, rebellious. And then, you know, it's just a very interesting dynamic to now be able to have so many years behind and learn so much more and pull at it to say, whoa, I was such a part of this like white savior culture um, that I didn't even realize and what I then was perpetuating. I remember one time we were filling out, uh, this was really painful. They had them filling out like little bubbles, like all the whole kindergarten team had to, had to start with plain paper, write lines, and then have circles all over it and start filling in properly and filling in the sheet properly. And I kept being like, I don't know, what are we doing? why do we have to do this? And they were like, shh, low and guard, you know, don't ask those kind of questions. And so we went to a staff meeting after school and I said, I'm literally, I'm not trying to be rude or disruptive. I just don't understand. And they were like, when you fill out job applications, when you fill out security, when you fill out forms, you have to know how to fill them out. And I remember driving home and being like, is that what we're teaching? Like how to fill out forms? That's, I'm not interested in that. Like that sounds horrible. And it's not just forms for a job application. I mean, what I think that's most directly connected to is a $4 billion standardized testing industry, yeah, yes. uh, which kids yes. are subjected to starting as early as, you know, kindergarten. And yes. those standardized tests, you know, the, the cr- huge profit is made off of those and profit that does not go to yes. Black and Indigenous communities. And yes. the standards that are set by those tests, the knowledge that you have to know is also set by white people. Um, and has nothing yes. to do with the communities yes. and context that most of my students have actually been in. Yes. Um, and I think that's, mo- and, and funding is tied to those. So it, it's all about money in the end and, and controlling young people to make sure that they collude with this machine. Yes, it was definitely for the testing. I just don't think the principal could say, she just didn't want to say that out loud. She just made it seem like this is a good thing for us to learn now. And I was like, wait, you mean you want them to do that for the future? So it was starting to connect those pieces. Um, And that was part of an unraveling process that we are looking for. That's what I, that's what I'm trying to focus on too, is like, what are we looking for? What is happening? We had a conversation in our neighborhood recently about 
what would equity in DCPS even really look like? We can't, it, it's so hard to even imagine that or envision that. And a lot of the people in my neighborhood send their kids to the local public school. But one of the discussions we had was would equity, and this is a question, not a statement, is would it be, you know, so many kids in Southeast come over to this neighborhood for good schools and spend a lot of time commuting? Does equity mean many children from this neighborhood could commute to Southeast for some good schools? And you could see this physical reaction of people being like, yeah, I'm not doing that. Right. I think even with that, it's like with the thought of having to add in travel or add in any more obstacles to like a proper education. If you just think about that thought alone, like I used to take the bus from Northwest to all the way to like Capitol Hill to go to Capitol Hill cluster schools. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so that means I have to wake up earlier my, me and my mother have to wake up earlier. Uh, that means when we have breakfast this morning, we may not have time to make it for breakfast. So I'm already at a disadvantage because I'm tired. I'm on the bus. It's loud. It's confusing. You know, so you got to think about, and I think, you know, if we look at the history of like districting and redlining that, it's very strategic to right. set things up in that way. And even the pushback with busing early on, it's like um, there are very strategic barriers in place to you know, to stop economic and educational equity and equality, you know, and that's clear. And I mean, even in DC, in a place where, of course, we can say, you know, for however long, the political establishment has been, you know, led by black people and brown people and people we consider to be allies, but then there were also larger barriers, you know, from higher up than local government because of, you know, the way our government is set up. So, I mean, I think D.C. is one microchasm for that, but there's, you know, a lot of examples we could point to. Um, now it's more like the technological gap, too. You add that on and, and what that means, especially when we're switching to, like, a virtual learning experience, you know? How many people are going to get left? How many kids are going to get left behind just off access? And, of course, there are certain programs that are helping to bring the technology in the homes, but then you add, you know, you add, the layers of whatever's going on in home, like the dynamics at home, yeah. which could be another barrier for some going to school is an escape from whatever's going on at home. So right now, I think we're going to be in a much more even unique uh, situation where certain problems are going to come up and like, wow, okay, it's new barriers. But, you know, another reason why I'm here in support of the Freedom Community School yeah. is like, how do we look at those um, not just as barriers, but as opportunities to kind of evolve the system and move out of that kind of standardized approach to, to learning and to community building. Yeah. I'd love to hear that. Okay. So now that we did a good job of saying all the things that are, that were not working or going well, <laughs> tied to money, capitalism, patriarchy, white supremacy, privilege, all of those mm -hmm. things. What are you guys most excited to implement and bring to life at Freedom Community? What are you so excited to practice and share and do? Like the evolution of taking all of that that we know isn't working and bring to life. Yeah, I think um, there's three significant ways in which uh, our school is really different from any other schools that we've been a part of. Um, and these Three traditions are old and um, have been tried many times in different ways and we didn't invent them. Um, but we don't see a school in DC right now that's using them together um, to create a freedom-based education. 
Um, so one of those systems is child-led project-based work. So there's lots of schools in DC that do that, but they cost $30,000, $40,000 a year. They're all in Northwest. They're completely inaccessible to folks who have been systematically uh, kept away from wealth. Um, so we're allowing students to like choose what they learn um, and choose how they demonstrate to us what they've learned. So um, each unit students do a project that they design um, at their you know, developmental stage that's appropriate for them. Um, and they demonstrate to us like what they've learned around our themes. Um, so Jamal's son is incredibly creative, sort of philosophical um, young artist and poet. And I'm sure he'll create a lot of beautiful plays, paintings, poems to show us like how he's integrating the themes that we're studying in school. Um, and we use descriptive review as an assessment practice, which is um, a way of just narrating what we're seeing young people doing as opposed to using any kind of awesome. standardized rubric to grade and um, compare their, their work. So it's an anti-competitive way to just objectively look at what young people are creating um, and follow their perspectives. So a progressive education rooted in doing and ideas um, that is, yeah, absolutely not a, a new idea. My great grandmother yeah. ran a, a progressive school um, in the twenties, but it historically has been um, intentionally not available yeah. to non uh, wealth hoarding students. Yeah. Um, so that's one. Then another uh, that's really, really important is using um, a political framework of transformative justice. Um, so creating an alternative to police, policing and prisons um, and an abolitionist framework in our classrooms as opposed to um, a carceral logic. So that means that any and all hurt and harm and conflict in our community is resolved through like ancient practices of um, restorative circles um, and through a deep learning for adults and children around Marshall Rosenberg's work in nonviolent communication so that we have the skills to actually name what we're feeling, what we might be needing that's not happening and make a request of the community uh, to support our need to be met. Um, and so that's just, you know, an incredible alternative. Um, I know that there's been a big initiative in DC public schools in the last few years to bring that in. And I've seen it really fall flat in terms of its actual implementation due to a lack of like deep understanding of it as a, as a philosophy and as an alternative to, to carceral logic. Mm -hmm. I've seen tons of teachers trying to use both. Um, so we're, we're really trying to create an alternate, you know, option and give kids a lived experience of being in a community where we don't punish people um, and we don't coerce people. Um, and I, yeah, I just think the implications of that are like un literally unimaginable. Like having young people go through that experience through their whole elementary school, like imagine the organizers they'll be for abolition in 15, 20 years from now, not just having studied it, but having like seen yeah. this works. <laughs> yeah. um, so that's another one of the things that we'll be doing. And then the third is to intentionally and explicitly teach about systems of injustice mm -hmm. um, and how they have historically always been resisted um, and, and empowering young people to participate in that resistance. So there are so much about systems of injustice is about invisibilizing and is about not telling the stories of that being what's happening mm -hmm. um, and definitely not telling the stories of all the ways that humans have always organized against irrational systems of injustice. Um, and so we make it really clear in our curriculum um, 
by, by telling the truth about what happened and, and you know, using age appropriate ways to develop critical thinking skills about the society that we're living in now um, and tons of like empowering kids around their own significance and changing that. So those three systems, again, like all of those, you know, have been done and, and are done in different places, but we don't see an elementary school in DC that's doing those three working together right now. Yeah. I'm curious, Jamal, what Cairo thinks about going to Freedom Community. Has he said anything about it? Does he understand those systems? Are they looped in on the intentionality of it? Um, so interesting and, uh, interestingly enough, the pandemic actually gave us the chance to kind of explore what that dynamic would be like. Yeah. Um, and so Lindsay led like a small group of students who um, would end up being, become like the core of what the school is. Um, and we would, they were doing basically virtual learning and it was all students that, you know, are coming from the charter school community uh, that were students of Lindsay's. And, you know, I think for me that, I can't say what his full understanding of it is yet because I think mm -hmm. it's new, but I mean, a lot of things that will be addressed is like stuff that we talk about um, at length with him already, like his mother and I, mm -hmm. but of course there's only going to be a certain level of, of understanding for it. Mm -hmm. And so realizing that it's going to have to be like a more structured, um, but still liberated space, but like a more structured and like drawn out, um, way of explaining those things is even a lot of these concepts are hard for adults to clearly understand and grasp as the <laughs> truth, you know? Um, and that's kind of why we are where we are now is because we have adults, some that are unable to really grasp these truths and some that are in denial and some that realize that their positions are literally due to these systems being in place and they don't want that quality of life to be threatened. So when you have those elements, um, you know, then you have what we have currently, but I think you know, unique, this, like, the time we're in is unique because it's, like, forcing us to sit down. It's forcing us to kind of separate ourselves and look at what's essential. And so, um, and then, like, this virtual learning, I think it removes some of, like, the social distractions that I think for him kind of were getting in the way of, like, learning. And I think, uh, you know, for me at least, uh, it's really integral in, like, in, in building identity and building confidence, like, you know, they have, there has to be some sort of ref seeing reflection and like a space for them to actually be heard and hear themselves and also um, see uh, why the work that they're doing is important, like mm -hmm. in a real way outside of just, it's important because I said you have to do this. Right. And I think that's a part of the approach. And so he may not fully understand yet, but I definitely see the results of that approach in his learning, even over the past few months when we first started doing the, the virtual learning group, um, I think it's been transformative so far. So my thinking is like, okay, well, if we look at a, a longer approach um, and, and when you're not dealing with the same kind of urgency that you have to in like a normal kind of school setting, mm -hmm. and it's not the same constraints and stresses on the teacher even, um, then I think the results would be much better. And I think it's less like pushing on efficiency in these kids in these you know not like a robotic approach to teaching and i, I don't think that yeah. the standard approach works for everybody like humans aren't standard so when we're talking about small humans we can't approach them with like standards and like ideas that were pervasive in the turn of the 20th century it's like we're in a whole nother time we have to approach 
education and we have to approach care differently than we than than the people who laid out the structure of you know the standard kindergarten to high school you know whatever um and we have to make it accessible as well and so yeah i don't think he understands that yet but you know i think it's more for him to get a chance to understand himself in these settings i think that's what he's going to yeah. get the chance to do you know what a gift some ways that I just wanted to share a few like ways that I think young people sort of understand this stuff like so from from Cairo Jamal's son specifically like one thing he one way he articulates it is he says like I I like I like our freedom community school because um it's fun and we don't do boring work so I think that speaks to like child-led project-based work it's like, <laughs> yeah. the main complaint that kids have about school is yeah. that it's boring, boring. Right? right and right. like he understands it as fun. That's like mm -hmm. really, really key mm -hmm. to him being able to continue learning. Mm -hmm. I think something else is like, like one time a few, this was like when he was in kindergarten, but like he said to me um, that in, he said in, in art class, I don't ask why I have to do stuff because um, the teacher doesn't care if we're free. But, and this was actually a tense moment between him and I, where he was really interrogating me about why he had to do something that I needed him to do. But like, he, you know, he and I had a completely different relationship around it being safe to ask me why he needs to do something and him trusting that I'm not going to harm him, I'm not going to humiliate him, um, and that I'm going to do my best to calmly explain to him why I think it's important for the community for him to do this and be open to it if he has a reason why he doesn't want to and he has yeah. a better idea. Um, so I think like those are some small examples of, of how it actually plays out in a young child's mind. And I agree with Jamal so much that like adults don't understand this stuff. Um, and like it's it's pretty complex. And I actually think kids understand it a lot better. <laughs> like kids have had less years of like being indoctrinated mm -hmm. uh, with like this is the way it is. Mm -hmm. and so they're actually much more curious, open and clear thinking about about justice, about what's right. Um, I mean, that's such a big part of kindergarten, right? Is like yeah. wrestling kids into compliance while they're like, no way, my body wants to be free. I don't want to sit in that chair. I don't want to do this boring thing. And mm -hmm. like, they're really clear that that's not what they're supposed to be doing. And as they get older, they get more and more discouraged. They get more and more harmed by adults in schools and they shut down more and more to keep themselves yeah. safe. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm thinking of my friends who run very, very large schools. Do you think this model can translate to huge numbers? Uh, maybe in, with a huge shift in ratios of, of adults and kids and with a huge shift in training around how adults relate to kids. Yeah. Um, I don't think that this kind of thing works well when you have one teacher and 30 kids. And that's actually why we have one teacher and 30 kids is like yeah. Jamal brought up like around efficiency, around yeah. like a school, you know, preparing children to be workers. Yeah. Um, and uh, setting teachers up to have their best possible option be authoritarianism and not humanity. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, having experience like in my own learning, like huger classrooms and in smaller classrooms, I just know how easy it is to like slip through the cracks. Yeah. Um, just off the, like the human ability to pay attention to 30 people at once, like, and also, um, approach them differently, like with different types of care, different, like we, you know, adults talk about love language and all of that. Well, it's not just a romantic concept, you know, it's also how we talk to each other, how we express things to each other, knowing what 
we can receive and how receptive we're going to be to certain things. It's like, it's impossible, you know, to do, I mean, not say impossible. I'm sure they're sweeping examples. They're outliers that like, yes, they've done great at it, you know, but I don't think that that's the standard. Um, and I know for myself, the times when I was slipping into oblivion because I just needed a different type of attention at the time. Um, or I knew that because the teacher was so occupied, I could manipulate the situation enough for me to skate by and not have to worry, you know? So it's not only that about this, the, the teachers being attentive enough, it's like kids are smart enough to know yes. when you're paying attention and when you're not, <laughs> and what things are going to elicit what response from you. So at the same time, it's like, let's not discount their ability to, you know, sway around. And, you know, not that I don't think it's always bad for them to think that way because you kind of want them to develop certain of those skills. But at the same time, we're talking about like education and at certain times, like we got to make sure that there's a, a dynamic where there's understanding happening. Yeah. And it's just harder to establish with larger groups of people, you know? It's just like yeah. Yeah. Th having 30 friends or 100 friends, and it's like you get on the group chat, everybody's talking at once. It's like, you know, it can be fun, yeah. but at the same time, how how uh, effective is it? How, what are we getting done in this time? And somebody's not gonna be heard, you know, or somebody's gonna be afraid to even speak up out of fear of not being heard. So all those dynamics, can it work in a, in a huge school? I mean, like Lindsay said, I don't know if you'd have to change the ratios of teacher to students. Also, that would be like having to shift societal consciousness to even accepting that, you know? And with that switching, that means you gotta change some adults' minds, which is the real, which is the real work, you know? Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, I agree. And I think it really just comes down to needs and resources. Like if you're gonna have a community that centers humanity, and that moves through process to, to hold people, you need, a, you need the resources to do that. And right. teachers get set up so that they're in a situation where the needs and resources are just not balanced. Like, mm -hmm. I remember thinking, you know, in a kindergarten class, like, mm -hmm. wow, we have just an abundance of hope in this room. Like there, like, there are 25 people in this room who are just incredibly hopeful about the, the world. And, like, right. what, what a wonderful thing. And, like, I wish, I wish we had more adults in this community that we could share that with. Because, you know, we're out here, all the adults I know are despondent. Like, yeah. We, yeah. they should get some of this. Yeah. And on the other hand, we got two people in the room that know how to tie shoes. So 20 pairs of shoes are untied. It's going to take us 40 minutes to get through that because me and one other kid are the only ones who have that skill. Yeah. And, like... That kind of imbalance is very intentional. We're set up that way so that the only way to run a classroom is as if things were on fire and you're the drill sergeant, you know? Like we, we get set up in an emergency situation as yeah. teachers um, so that our best option for keeping kids alive um, is authoritarianism. Yeah. Um, that, that's intentional. Yeah. Thank you for that. That makes a lot of sense. Um, okay, last question is, Okay, so your dream is coming to life. <laughs> yeah. Aha! What skills and characteristics got you here? This was an idea that is now being born. So I want to be clear about what it takes you both as humans to bring this to life. I'm sure it hasn't all been easy. <laughs> so what's really honed in you to step into this leadership and bring your dream and your vision to life? I think um, the most important thing that we have is trust. Mm. 
So there's a group of people who, hmm. who trusted each other. Beautiful. Yeah. Um, and we trusted each other across lines of race and class, um, religious orientation, backgrounds. Um, and we decided to, to really believe in our relationships. And um, yeah, people have been asking me, you know, how do I do this? Like, mm -hmm. how do I start this project? Um, and my first question is just like, what are the relationships like? Do you have any? <laughs> um, mm -hmm. I don't think without that, we could have moved anywhere. Um, so that's one big one. Jamal, what do you think? Yeah, I think the trust is, is the big part. And also like vision and um, mm. I think all the parents are, are committed to radical change. And that's part of the belief. Yeah. It's like, you know, I'm sure we all come from like diverse backgrounds, even the parents, you know, different geographically and economically um, and educationally. So I think the, the thing that locks us in is like, oh, well, we're committed to some type of radical change. There's something about the way schooling was happening even at a progressive, you know, seemingly progressive charter school that's, you know, supposed to be using restorative justice as, as one of its own templates. But in, in our eyes, at some point, that, that commitment was not held up completely, you know? And so it's like, for us, I think there's a longing for something different and something more substantial and, you know, trust in, in Lindsay's style of teaching and a trust in what she's laid down as the ethos you know, in conjunction with other partners and collaborators, but, you know, what, sh what they've laid down is the ethos for the school moving forward and not just for the school, but for the world. It's like, mm -hmm. we're trying out in the community, in the school setting. I think, you know, if you're trying to have some radical change, you got to start as early as possible mm -hmm. in breaking the indoctrination. And mm -hmm. uh, so that's important. And, you know, we're here committed as collaborators, you know, as parents, it's, it's a process, of course, you know, um, somewhat of an experiment, but at the same time, it's like, you know, if you look at, I think if you look at maybe the ways that we institute some of those same things at home, some of these same ideas and approaches with our children at home, um, you would expect and you, you would at least want for the same things to be reflected in like an educational setting. And, you know, I think the principles that have been laid out are aligned with how we personally have operated or you know what we've been raised on or what we see as the best way to raise our children and yeah. so you know that's why it's a purely collaborative thing so here we are excited it's only a couple of weeks out though it's exciting it's very exciting it sounds like it's very much in alignment with who you are as a person and and again those relationships and that collaboration and community and <laughs> that feels so good and energizing to have that alignment with the schools that we're part of, you know? Um, <clears throat> okay. How, okay. Now everyone who listened to this is like, this is amazing. These people are amazing. The school is amazing. What would you like them to do now? How can we help build the community, sustain it? What's your ask or what can we ask? How can we make this sustainable? Yeah. Well, I think, a really important piece of this school is that it's tuition-free private. So we're tuition-free private because we do not want to be beholden to the DC Charter Board mm -hmm. um, because we do not want to have to subscribe to the 
uh, racist standardized testing industry or all the other ways in which they influence what happens in schools. We want to be free from that to make our own decisions about curriculum um, and how we interact with young people. Um, so that means we need to be a private school um, and we're tuition free because uh, we need to be accessible. That's a big part of our mission, um, regardless of access to wealth. Um, so that means that we have to fund our entire school um, every year off of our own fundraising. Um, so we raise all the money for the first year in the last few months. Um, and I want to invite people into <laughs> that project. So I think funding this school is like a really incredible piece of reparations work. Um, if I can say just a little bit about the history of education, like, um, you know, early on in the United States, um, when Africans and African heritage people were brought here and enslaved, um, there were no, no laws to protect them. And um, white people were legally permitted to do pretty much like unlimited violence and brutalization to the bodies of black people and indigenous people. And there was very few regulations and limitations around what white people could do. I um, mean, there was one really important law, which was um, that you could not teach enslaved Africans to read and write. Um, and many of, of the students in this school are descendants of enslaved Africans, descendants of, you know, empires in, of Africa that were, you know, human trafficked and brought here against their will. And also many descendants of the Piscataway and Anacostians um, that lived in, in the DC area. Um, and and that, that rule that to not be able to teach them how to read and write was one of the few that was heavily enforced. You know, police were, were invented around enforcing mm -hmm. rules like that one. Um, and that's because the power of literacy, the power of learning um, was always known um, to be way, way, way too big to be able to give a group of people that would, would of course use it <laughs> uh, to completely resist and, and did, you know, tons and tons of enslaved Africans and indigenous people did learn it and did use it. Um, and I think that, you know, that's the legacy of education in America that, you know, that hasn't, that hasn't gone away yeah. um, by now. That's, it's, you know, we talk about something called an achievement gap, which is actually the failure of the American school system to, to educate Black and Indigenous people on purpose. Um, and so I think, like, <laughs> however people have access to wealth, it's tied to that history. Oh, sorry. Cairo's checking in in chat. You're fine. We were talking hey, about you. <laughs> hey, hello. Hi. Beautiful. Uh, and that history. Sorry to interrupt. No, no. I'm so happy to see Carrie. Um, the history is just is also just deeply connected to however people have money. Um, however, you have money if you trace it back far enough, it's connected in some way to the exploitation and violence done to Black and Indigenous folks. Um, that's almost always true um, for white folks that have money. So I I think moving those resources over into a school like this is like an absolutely like liberating thing for people who have money based on that history, who know that history to do, um, to shift those resources back into communities um, that have been, yeah, just historically blocked from that, from education and from wealth um, through all sorts of the, you know, legal stuff that, that Jamal was talking about around redlining. Um, and so I just, I think it's a really powerful way for, for folks to step into reparations work and to step into community, like see what these kids can do. Mm -hmm. Like 
you will be blown away if you come to our art shows. We had a poetry reading um, a few weeks ago. It was amazing, unreal. Like some of the, I'm hoping some of the work's gonna get published in the, the Freedom Fighters Black Youth Zine. So there's, you're invited in <laughs> to see what these young people are doing, what they're thinking about and what's possible for them when the resources are there to provide them with rich materials, one-on-one -on -one instruction, yeah. um, a beautiful building, <laughs> like, all of that stuff has always been accessible to people with wealth. And the reason that people have that wealth is, is the violence and exploitation of black and indigenous folks. So it's just a really meaningful way, I think, to participate in liberation work to shift your wealth over into this school. Yeah. And you'll have, you're gonna have monthly contributions where people can keep that ongoing so that that relationship, again, it's not like a drop it, give, you know, I mean, of course you can give a lot of money and, and walk away. But I think, again, sort of in the model of community and collaboration, having an ongoing relationship, having ongoing money that you're giving for sustainability is a really beautiful way to, to, to really weave and thread, um, learn and grow and, and be part of something um, right now, while so many white folks are looking for ways to be helpful, quote unquote, or to do something, um, for me, this makes a lot of sense in terms of doing something, putting money there, shifting wealth, shifting power, and really understanding um, those systems that you were talking about, the three pillars that you guys are using in the school, just so that I can, again, learn and become a better human also, right, from all of that. As an adult, we were talking about how some of us are still working on, lots of us are still working on those areas. Um, so any final thoughts, ask, anything you want anyone to know? I just, do, I do agree with uh, a lot of what Lindsay was saying as far as like the, the empowering, um, the, you know, education is a tool for liberation yeah. and understanding self. And I think a big part of why white supremacy and racism worked is you get a group of people to not understand themselves, disconnecting people from identity, you know, and identity is so crucial in building confidence and also in imagining your own future, you know, and so like imagination is definitely like a tool for survival. And when you remove that, mm -hmm. um, then you have people that scramble to, that have to scramble in desperate situations to survive. Um, or just have to go strictly with the the position that the system allows them to assume, you know, the role that's allowed for them to play um, in contributing to the system as opposed to imagining what the world could look like outside of the system, you know? And so that's one thing education and culture and art and all these things have allowed me to do, at least yeah. imagine it even when the system may not always allow you to act or give you the proper resources to be effective and impactful in that. It's like we can at very least give kids the tools to think critically and imagine the world in a different way. And so, you know, I'm in full support of that for everyone, not only for our kids, but yeah. for everybody and, and for adults, not only for kids. I think adults have to reclaim that part of their imagination to see what the world can be, you know? So beautiful. Thefreedomcommunityschool.org. Yes. That's what I was going to say. Where can they find you? Freedomcommunityschool.org. There'll be links to it in the notes, in the description. Um, and there's a newsletter, I imagine, or something where people can learn more about if you have open events or the poetry gets published and we can really share that. 
And just kind of, I'm really just asking everyone, if you are still listening, to just envision wrapping your arms around the school. Like, let's just support them. Let's just bring them into our hearts and into our homes as they, you know, really step forward into this first year. You'll never have another first year, another first day, and another first week. And so, like, I just want us to support you all in that work and really be feel, I want you to feel us energetically doing that for you. Like we're behind you um, in all of the ways because this, this work is so important. So thank you guys so much. Thank you. Thank you, Pleasance.